Hello and welcome to the Island Stories podcast. I'm your host, Harriet Hadfield. Three years ago, I came home to the island and started a new life, which really got me thinking. Each and every one of us living here has an island story. Last year, we spoke to some wonderful guests, each with an extraordinary story to tell. And this season is no different. So let me introduce this week's guest, Nigel Hartley, the Chief Executive Officer of Mountbatten Hospice, arguably the island's best supported and best known charity. Nigel's worked in end-of-life care for over 30 years and is considered a leading voice in his field all around the world. Hey Nigel, thanks so much for joining us. I'm very happy to be here, thank you. Well the first question we always ask on this podcast, very simply, why the island? came to the island on holiday when I was a child and my mother came here regularly on holiday after I'd grown up. I'd been involved with the hospice here, came to help them, particularly with a refurbishment and a redesign of services they were going through. And I'd been over here to speak at one of their conferences. And having worked at St Christopher's Hospice in London for 15 years prior to coming here, um, I eventually began to look for a new role and a new challenge, really. And I had this strange pull to the Isle of Wight. I don't know how you explain that. It just sort of felt as if something was pulling me here. You know, the job came up. I didn't apply for it. Somebody else got it. And then a couple of years later, it came up again. And I was sort of strangely drawn, thinking I need to go to the Isle of Wight. No idea what that was about um, in, in terms of how to articulate it. I guess from a, a work perspective, I wanted to come somewhere where I felt I could make a real difference. And the geography of the island was really interesting um, in terms of particularly, you know, from a hospice perspective, you know, the boundaries are quite useful because we're the only organisation on the island that can do what we do. So therefore, could we develop a model, particularly for this older population on this island, that could be replicated and could become well known across the field, really? So there was a lot of ambition. I am a very ambitious person. But having been brought up in North Wales, very quickly it felt like coming home. That being near the sea, the sense of community, I'm really driven by that. And I think communities working together can make a huge difference. It's just so interesting listening to you say that, that strange pull to the island that you describe and then how it reminds so many people of home. Mm. People who come from all over the world have said that to me, including on this podcast. Yeah. It's a pretty special place. It's a pretty special place. And I guess we bought a house in St. Lawrence, right on the south of the island. Um, it was the old village pub. And having been brought up in a pub in North Wales, it was that link as well, which was strange. But I remember we, we had two weeks before I started the job. We moved in. And I'm a pianist. We have a grand piano. And I was moving the piano and pulled my back out. It was the first time in my life. And I thought, my God, I can't move. So we had to get some, some um, medication from the local GP. My partner went to the local post office to get something. And somebody must have asked him who he was. And he said, oh, you know, my partner's Nigel, I'm going to be working at the hospice. And he's pulled his back out. And within that afternoon, about six neighbours knocked on our door with food, with advice of how to look after your back and I thought my god you know we're not in Kansas anymore it was absolutely extraordinary having been in London where that was very rare. St Lawrence is a special place isn't it it's a people describe it as sort of slightly bohemian uh, what's your experience of living there? Love it I mean I absolutely love it I mean the sense of, of friendship and family in all of its in all of its kind of forms, really. I always tell this story. I was very fortunate to work with Cicely Saunders, who founded the Modern Hospice Movement. And I remember when I got to St Christopher's, she said to me, "You know, you're you're, you're going to love this. Um, we're just like a family." And I remember thinking, "God, I hope you're not like my family, because that's terrible." But family in all of its forms, I guess. You know, the complexity, the the fun, the the love the laughter that you have. So St. Lawrence is a very special place and we fell into it by accident. And speaking of immediate family, you just mentioned your partner. Tell me a bit more about him. Who is he? What does he do? Yeah, so Tom's American um, and he's a florist. Um, so works in, in a florist in Newport in the flower garden, loves it, works part time. I think loves having that kind of life where you can have some days doing his own thing. He he loves buying art. So working, li living in St. Lawrence, Lawrence, obviously, sort of a great place. And I always come home and spot yet another piece of artwork <laughs> prior to being in Beaver's married. So has two children and we have five grandchildren. So we have this huge family around us. So Mountbatten. Hmm. 
it's an extraordinary brand on the island. I've always been struck as I'm trustee of Homestar. I'm always trying to work out what it is that you guys do here that means that everyone on the island has heard of Mountbatten and everyone has raised money for Mountbatten. I think I, I agree. I think Mountbatten is very unique on the Isle of Wight. And I've worked in five other hospices that have never quite had this unique relationship with the local community. I mean, hospices do just because of what they are. They have relationships with their local communities. But Mountbatten and the Isle of Wight is different. I do think there's a, a deep psychological relationship between the work that Mountbatten does and the people on the island who know they're going to live out the rest of their lives here. So they know they will need it. And I think that's unspoken. It plays into people's need to be involved, need to support it. So there's that bit of it. More people on the island have already had experience of Mountbatten with family members, with loved ones dying. And I'm always really struck. And, I, it, you know, it's hard, isn't it, to articulate how does Mountbatten do what it does and how does it do it so well most of the time? We don't get it right all the time, um, but we take it very seriously when we don't. So how do we do it? How do you articulate it? But just reading some of the recent letters that come in from people, you know, the sense of relief when people get to us, the, the fact they don't have to worry about not being cared for, about having to fight for access to things. There's something around the reliability of Mountbatten. It's secure, it's steady, it's there always. And people can pick up the phone and hopefully our culture is that we will always say yes and we will always try and help. It's called the hospice. People know it as the hospice, but actually there's a lot of care in the home that you do. So just give us an idea of what Mountbatten does on any given day. Yeah, so a hospice is not just a building. A hospice is, is, is a service. You know, we are here to be of service to our local community. I always say the community own this organisation. They pay for most of it. And I feel like I'm, along with the rest of the team here, we're custodians of it, really. We're keeping it safe. We're keeping it developing. We're keeping it sort of alive and relevant for the generations to come. So what does it do? Dying is not a short-term event for most people. I think that's a, a misconception. People think of dying as a moment in time. Dying, for most people, happens over a long period. And I think particularly for an older population who are convinced by the media, by everything that's said that we're all going to live forever. And living longer means dying slower. So Manhattan, the earlier we get to know people when their life is changing, I think the more impact we can have. So helping people to think through a future that's almost unbearable to think about. You know, what is it you would like when? What is it if you would, what, like, what, what would you like if, this kind of thing. And we're not very good at doing that because we, we think death's going to happen some way into the future. And if we don't think about it, it will never happen. But I guess what we say to people is think about it now. Plan for it. Put everything down. Make sure people know. Because from my experience of 35 years of so or so of doing this, illness comes unexpectedly. And death comes unexpectedly. You're never ready for it. There's something around Mount Patton saying to our community, come on, we can help you get ready. And it's not scary and it's not going to happen tomorrow. But actually, there's huge benefit in, in starting that process early. And that might be around an advanced care plan. It, and, you know, we have all the documentation to help people do that. It might be around a conversation. It might be coming here to see that what happens in this building is actually quite normal and terribly boring. I always say the act of dying is not very exciting, really. You're lying in a bed waiting for it to happen. And, you know, it's not dramatic. It's not crisis. It's not chaotic. It can be incredibly calm and it can be incredibly well managed. But your part in that is to step into the planning for it as early as you can. I don't know if people are listening and thinking, my goodness, a whole podcast talking about death. It's quite an unusual thing. And we'll, mm. we'll, we'll speak more about the conversation around death mm. but I think for me it's a really important conversation we should be having these conversations more open it shouldn't be a taboo subject but in terms of here I mean my statistics that I've dug out may well be out of date but I've read that you can look after up to 1,700 people on any one day is that correct? Yeah so on our books today we have around 2,000 people Whoa. across the island now we don't visit every one of those people every day but they are there receiving some form of our care. 
I've read that it's increased a huge amount. It's going up by the day. So over the last few years, so pre-COVID, we're now about 200% more people we're looking after. We've got on our books. And we know that's probably going to rise in the next three to five years, another 40% on the Isle of Wight. It's an older population. We're an outlier in the UK. If we can get it right here, people are going to be very interested which is really what drives oh, that's us. That's interesting. <laughs> so we're in, like in so many things, we're, we're sort of almost like a test case. Yeah, people come here to retire. So it's, it's 15 years ahead of the rest of the UK. There are other places in the UK that are similar. Yeah. We're not the only one, but we are an outlier. And what we can't do is put our heads in the sand and ignore that because what's happening here mm. is coming <laughs> to a place near you. Yes, and there's this whole conversation nationwide about adult mm-hmm. social care and how yeah. we look after people. Can you just explain how you're funded? Because some some funding comes from the NHS, but a huge mm. amount is as a charity. Yes, yeah, so this particular hospice, and we do run the hospice in Hampshire as well now, but certainly on the island, costs around £11 million a year to do what we do and rising. So um, we get roughly about a third of that from the National Health Service commissioners, so they're commissioners to deliver services on their behalf. But what we know is with that money, we can't do what's needed. So we have to raise on top of that third, another two thirds of that 11 million from our community to keep ourselves going. Rising need, rising costs. It only means one thing. We have to find more money from somewhere. And you recently gave an interview to Alan Marriott, who's mm-hmm. also been a guest on the podcast, That's right, yes. um, about the the rising costs. And yeah. it's a big number, isn't it, that it's gone? Well, just from energy, you know, and energy does seem to be sort of calming down a little bit. But £200,000 more in the last year, the energy on this building has cost us, let alone all of our shops across the community. You know, we believe very strongly we should be matching the NHS pay award. Um, they're our main competitors. So whatever happens in the NHS, we have to follow it. You know, 4.8% this year, normally 2%, that has an impact. And that is going to go up again. You know, the strikes are not going to go anywhere else other than another pay rise. Absolutely believe that our staff should be paid a fair and proper wage for what they do. They do really difficult things on a day-to-day basis. They are doing things that people can't possibly imagine. And it's relentless. It's daily and they do it incredibly well. So they need to be paid well. What about recruitment of staff? Because I know that's something that the hospital struggles mm-hmm. with. And presumably you're recruiting from a similar pool of people. We are recruiting from a similar pool. I guess what I would say is we tend to get the best. <laughs> and again, how you articulate this, I don't know. People come want to come and work here. It's not for everyone. But I always say in hospices, my experience of all hospices I've worked with, people either come and stay for their whole career or they come and stay for two years decide it's not for them and go. But we do tend to get the pick of the crop. When you came here in 2015, it was quite a turbulent time, I think, for Mountbatten. I've, I've read that there was sort of yeah. CEOs coming and going, some reputational damage. So you, something you've had to work quite hard to restore. Yes. And again, I think that goes back to the reason of maybe why I came here. I wanted to go somewhere I could get my teeth into. I'm not someone who can just sit back and do a job. You like a challenge. I like a challenge. I was born with the work hard gene. I mean, that's just in me. I, I, you know, give everything I've got to my work, sometimes at the detriment of other things. (sighs) And I work for a cause. So yes, when I came here, there was financial issues and there were reputational issues. Mostly, I think, and you know, I'm not here to criticise what's happened in the past, but it seems to me from my own experience people maybe hadn't done what they did in a considered and rational way. It had been done very quickly and therefore they then had to deal with a reaction to what they did rather than preparing people, rather than talking people through what was happening and why, which, by the way, in my experience, always helps you to change your mind sometimes around what you're doing. Um, So, yes, there was. And actually, I found that quite exciting in terms of my own experience of working with leaders in hospices, I worked with the pioneers, I guess. I worked with Cicely Saunders. I worked with someone called Robert Twycross, who was one of the first palliative care consultants in the country. And I was incredibly inspired by these people who had drive and wanted to change the world. 
I always ask when I interview someone, I always ask someone who knows them well, what it is about my guests that makes them so special and makes them such a unique islander. And I spoke to a lovely friend of mine who lives in my village, Mary Taylor, who has worked in the, well, she says it's the chaplaincy or spiritual care team, but she's worked here for Mm -hmm. 18 years. Mm -hmm. And she's a huge fan of yours, she said. When he arrived, the care movement on the island needed to be shaken up. He did it in a very gracious way. I've been at the hospice for a long time and I just think he's the best. Always with his door open, always willing to talk to people. He always has time for people. We are incredibly lucky to have him. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Gosh, a bit overwhelmed really. I I do believe personality is everything, (laughs) particularly in a leadership role. And, you know, people have different views of that. You know, people talk a lot about charisma. They talk a lot about being extrovert. With our personality, there's a price to pay, I think, with the personality we have. I love talking to people. I love trying to understand what makes them tick. I love trying to understand why they've got the wrong end of the stick, you know, why they're understanding things in a certain way. And I would spend my day talking to people if I could. (laughs) We have that that in common, don't we? (laughs) Yes, probably. I probably should have been been an interviewer or something. You should probably have your own (laughs) I'm probably far too interested in talking about myself to do that. Um, But I, you know, I I think people are endlessly extraordinary working with dying people. And I've worked in my whole career with thousands of dying people. I meet ordinary people at a very extraordinary time of their Mm -hmm. life. And finding the extraordinary in the ordinary is just so exciting. I asked Mary, what would you want to ask him if you were interviewing him (laughs) oh my goodness Uh, and she said well he's got this huge sense of duty and of getting it right but she wants to know what drives him so what drives you well I suppose yeah I go back right to the beginning I guess so in the mid 80s early to mid 80s a very close friend of mine died from an AIDS related illness AIDS at that time was very new. It was very scary, particularly to a generation of people like myself, who was in, I was in my early to mid 20s. Um, I trained as a concert pianist. Um, We're going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but had gone off in another direction. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, as well. And had trained as a therapist, counsellor, music therapist, psychology, that kind of thing. And was thrown into this world where a very close friend of ours was dying of just a, a really grotesque illness really with so little understanding um, and so little readiness within the health system to deal with it and watching that and watching somebody die in a way they should never have to die just gets me up in the morning still you know it's why everyone's death touches me (laughs) everyone's and I guess that's what drives me still just so that remembering one, that one that moment. Was, it was the one moment yeah. which was I was thrown into without any expectation or any kind of readiness for it. And yet it just completely has, I suppose, governed the rest of my life and will continue to do so. Let's go back then to life before living on the Isle of Wight. Now, I know you were born in North Wales in a place that I'm not going to dare to pronounce. So um, why don't you do it for me? Well, I was born um, in North Wales, somewhere between Wrexham and Llangollen. Um, and um, my family owned a pub. And it was an extraordinary place to be brought up. What kind of pub? I know that sounds... It was a village pub Yeah. Um, in the 60s. Uh, a very kind of specific community. So we had the pub and we had the church next door and everyone just walked between the two places and sorted out their problems, I guess, in different <laughs> ways. And, you know, in the pub, you saw life in all its forms. I mean, you saw great joy and happiness, but you saw aggression. You know, people would fight sometimes. There would be arguments um, fueled by alcohol, of course. So you saw life and community in all of its forms. And from a very young age, I was dropped into that. And learned how to deal with it, I guess. And I'm incredibly thankful for it because nothing throw, nothing kind of wobbles me, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Do you think you learned to be an extrovert in that pub or do you think that was in you? I think it was in me. I, I am an extrovert. I mean, there's no question about it. But I love also the opportunity to be on my own. I'm one of those strange people. Some days I think I could quite easily go and be a hermit. 
I'd probably last a very short time and then become rushing out. Yes, But I I do have that swing between those two things, uh, which is interesting. You know, I love having time on my own. I just value that so much. And and it's it's rare that that happens, um, as you can imagine. Yeah, so being brought, brought up in this pub was incredible. And watching how everyone just looked after each other, really, sometimes in quite strange ways. I had the most incredible grandparents as well. You know, my grandfather, when he died, we'd learned that he'd been paying the bills of various people in the village who couldn't afford their electricity bill or without any, no one knew. Yeah. And I just think, God, that would be amazing to be like that, to be that kind that you do it without any yeah, kind of... Yeah, not needing, not needing, not to needing anyone for to know. people to know that you've yeah. done it. Yeah, and that was, you know, that just fills me with warmth and gratitude. <laughs> Where did the piano thing come from? So, I guess that is linked to the pub. We used to have a, a, a lady in the pub who played every night called Diamond Lil, of course, because that's what people were called. Um, I think <laughs> her name actually was Lillian, and, and I did used to... I remember being four, tinkling on the piano... And then I had lessons and I guess realised I was quite good at it. And my family realised I was quite good at it. And I guess that began a journey that probably I didn't question myself enough. I did it because I was good at it and everyone else thought that's what I should be doing. I think that happens to child prodigies though, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm sure, absolutely. That went on. I um, did a degree. I won a British Council scholarship all of those things, and came to a very sudden end when someone shut a car door on my hand when I was 19, 20, I think. And I guess what that did, it didn't stop me playing, because I can, I still play now, and I love playing the piano, but it, I remember just the moment thinking, I now have a choice, actually. <laughs> Being a musician in that way was very lonely. It was very isolating. And I think that probably answers my question of what would happen if I did spend a lot of time on my own. I'd probably get bored very quickly. I think what stems from that for me now is I'm still a performer. I still love an audience. I can still, you know, I get up, but I, I do it on my own terms. And I do it with the experience and the, the authority that I've now got after these 35 years of doing this work. So performances, I still see it as an element of what I do. And some days I do it well and some days I don't. But I don't miss the pressure of being that technically competent of having to just produce the stuff all the time in in the right way. I was going to ask you that because it's quite shocking when you tell it, you know, you had this incredible career, concert pianist, incredibly talented, a lot of work had gone into it. For someone to shut your hand in a car door, I mean, it's brutal. Mm. Yeah, it was very sudden. I get, you know, it wasn't the fact that it stopped me. It's, it, it made me think, I guess, and it, it made me realise I had choices myself. Did it happen for a reason? Do you believe in yeah, that kind of thing? Yeah, I do. It's, yeah. it's why I'm here on the Isle of Wight. Same thing. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm exactly the same. You still do lots of playing? Yeah, absolutely. We have a grand piano at home. I love playing. Interestingly, I either play when we've got lots of people around or I play when I'm completely on my own having people around for dinner or having a party people love the fact that somebody can just sit at the piano and knock out a few tunes and that kind of thing and I do love it It, it, it's it's really life affirming okay we do want to talk about death and as I said earlier it's something that I don't think people are used to talking about um certainly not you know the generation of people who ought to be talking about it and ought to be thinking about it. Um, I've got the advanced care plan that you mentioned in my hand, which is it's a great document, actually. Um, I haven't tried to fill it out for myself yet, but I but I ought to. I mean, I shouldn't think that I'm too no. young to need it. Absolutely not. This document, just being able to give it to people, is quite a powerful thing to get people to think about it. Yeah, It's the kind of thing you might have on your desk or on your sideboard at home sitting there kind of beckoning to you from time to time. And I think it's just that first thing of people opening it and thinking, oh, God, yeah, of course, that's so sensible. (laughs) It's not scary. I think after all these years, I'm still scared of dying. Of course I am. I'm a human being. But I do think on a good day I might be able to manage it (laughs) with everything I've seen and the the experiences I've had of, of people's 
deaths mostly being calm and managed and okay. It says here, my wishes and preferences, key messages about me, right here anything that's important to you at this time. Personal care preferences, goals, aspirations. It's kind of lovely in a way, isn't it? Pets, right here, any information you'd like to share about pets? Who would look after them if you were admitted to yeah. hospital? Things like the detail. I mean, so many times, you know, people when they're dying will say, oh, my, my, I don't know who's going to look after my cat. You know, and it, it's really, it's so humbling <laughs> to think that that's what really matters to someone. It, 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 it's the minutiae of life that really matters. You're a world leader in writing about, talking about, making people think about death. Does it, I don't really know how to ask this, does it get you down ever that you are constantly thinking about it, talking about it? Not constantly. I, I don't think it's anything any of us could bear to think about constantly um, because it's so full of unknown, isn't it? And, you know, obviously in the work that I've done and probably like most people, I guess, I think, well, I wonder what it will be like. I wonder how my death will be, you know, will it be sudden, will I have time? All of the same questions probably each and every one of us will ask ourselves, even if not out loud. So I guess the advanced care plan is just kind of putting that out there. Think about it, because it will make a difference. How many patients do you have who have done it in advance? Increasingly more because I think the word is getting out there. So we do see a momentum towards more people perhaps having some plans in place um, as they come through. I mean, the problem is when people don't, you know, suddenly people will end up in the last weeks, months of life without ever having had a conversation. And at that stage, it becomes even more difficult, I think. So you then enter into family dynamics. I mean, families, you know, <laughs> like mine, we don't talk to each other sometimes and there'll be all the history to deal with. So that comes to play. So we're dealing with, you know, family dynamics, with friend dynamics, with, with individuals kind of personalities, I think. And I guess all of that then, the, 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 the lack of planning becomes a vehicle for that to emerge if that makes sense. So, of course, you know, all these dynamics come into play and, and, and it's not uncommon for someone to say, you know, don't tell mum she's dying. And it's like, well, for God's sake, she's in a hospice. She knows she's dying. You know, it's going to be a relief to her to have that conversation. And the thing is, you don't need to be having those conversations for the first time at that point. And I guess that's what we're trying to say Lots of this stuff can be dealt with in advance. You know, does mum want to be cremated? Does she want to be buried? Does she, you know, want to be on her own? Does she does she know who she wants to be around her? Who does she want to have the last conversation with? You know, these kinds of things, which are really scary things, but they can be sorted out in advance and they make a huge difference. So death is something that's going to happen to every single one of us. I point out the absolute obvious here, but... Why are we so squeamish about talking about death? I don't know. I, I, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, in the past we weren't. I mean, I've got no idea. <laughs> I wasn't here. So, yeah, you, you know, could imagine maybe they, they maybe, were. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's always been a bit of a taboo. I don't know. Or maybe people have found different ways of talking about it or different languages. Or um, I, I really don't know. But I... I think it's because we live in a world that's so fast paced, we're always moving on to the next thing. And suddenly the realisation that there might not be a next thing is, is just not even possible for people to comprehend. Um, but it's true, you know, we will all die and we will all be bereaved. And that's the reality. And the more stuff we put in place to manage it when it happens, the more, I guess, fulfilling an experience it's going to be. And do you think, do you have a way of speaking to people about it? You know, I know, for example, of uh, a family, friends of mine, they recently lost someone my age to cancer. And I spoke to the mum and she said, you know, it's so awful because people cross the road in the village rather than talk to me because they just don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'd rather people just came straight out with it. I'm so sorry she's dead. Yeah. That must be awful. Yeah. But we somehow just don't seem to be able to do it. And I think the majority of people would feel more relieved if someone is straightforward. Yeah, I guess absolutely. people are different. And, you you know, you always have to take that into an account. But, you know, just hearing you say that recently, just here, 
um, in the John Cheverton Centre here. I was speaking to someone a few weeks ago who said, since I was diagnosed, my friends don't talk to me anymore. Yeah, that, you do hear that um, a lot. And our Mountbatten's kind of, you know, part of our work, and actually probably an increasing part of our work, has to be to help people find a language mm. to talk about death. And, you know, you talked about losing your friend and, and your friend died. And I would always kind of point that out to people in a kind way and in the right way. We, we use lots of pseudonyms. I mean, I remember a story when I worked at St. Christopher's where a gentleman died on our inpatient unit overnight. And I can't remember. He came from a, um, a, a sort of BAME background. Uh, anyway, they were in, immigrants into the UK. And one of the nurses rang his wife during the night and said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, we've lost your husband. And the wife thought they'd actually lost yeah. him. I mean, <laughs> you know, because to her, yeah. that was the only comprehension of that language she had. Yeah. I guess we have to be careful with people. You know, I'm, I'm a real stickler for language. I, I hate words that get overused or... You know, people use certain phrases as if it's meant to mean something and it means nothing. So I'm, I've always been the kind of person people say to me, one of the things when I'm talking a lot is say, do you get what I mean? Do you understand? Trying to work out if I'm using the right words for that person. Mm. You know, and sometimes if you might overstep the mark with someone and, and you use the word death or dying in the wrong moment, um, for someone at the end of their life and they say, oh, I don't want, you know, don't say that. And, you know, it's being able to say, well, what would you what like, would you like me? me to What would you like it? me to say? Because I don't like passed away. No. I, it, for some reason, it just kind of triggers me. Yes. I just don't, I, I don't yeah, like yeah. it at all. Well, we use all those pseudonyms. And I guess something that's meaningful to us might not be meaningful to the person mm. we're talking to. And there's a movement in language as well, isn't there, to try and use proper terms for things. I think of, um, you know, penis, vagina. You're supposed yeah. to talk to your children yeah, about absolutely. those words rather than giving them stupid yeah, words. Absolutely. Because otherwise they will grow up to think there's some kind of shame yeah. in it. Or, yeah. And death is really, really similar, I it think. It is. It absolutely is. So Mountbatten's kind of drive, I guess, to help the Isle of Wight community find a language to talk to each other mm. about these things. It's really important. I, you know, I did a speech at a, a fundraising dinner where someone said, I'm not supporting the hospice if you're using that language. People have very strong... And what was it that you'd said? I think I just... talked about dying a lot and death and gave lots of stories. I mean, not graphic, but it makes people very uncomfortable. And some people will have extreme reactions to it. That's my experience. I mean, not often, but sometimes it makes people feel so uncomfortable they can't go near it. I just wish we could help them. And it can be a controversial thing, mm. Death. I mean, I'm thinking kind of politically, assisted dying, something Absolutely. that is uh, forefront of you know politics, it just kind of keeps going round and round in yeah. circles, I yeah. feel like, with, with MPs. Something, I suppose, that... You know, obviously, it's completely illegal here, um, but it must be something that you and your staff talk about. Mm. It must be something you have views on. Yeah. I mean, it's very rare in my I mean, and I, you know, I said earlier, I've worked with thousands of dying people, and it is very common for people to ask, if the time comes, will someone be able to help me if it's unbearable? It's wow. a common question. Really? Um, and of course, it is illegal, and we would never do that. Absolutely. You know, it's not, it's not our business. I do believe assisted dying will become law in the UK at some point in the future. And at that point, we are going to have to take a view on it. I guess my view of assisted dying, it's so rare that people choose it, really. When you look, you know, you look at Oregon, you look at these places, it's not a common thing that people choose. But it's a very common conversation people want to have. And I wouldn't want people to think they couldn't come here and have that conversation. And what kind of illnesses do you think it's appropriate, or, or at least the the, yeah. the, the the patient might feel that it's appropriate for them? Well, again, you can't have done this work as long as I have without thinking, what are your top three illnesses to avoid? <laughs> you know, because you see, I mean, certainly motor neuron disease, which happens for many people over a long period of time, to watch that kind of disintegration in body but also in mind and spirit is, is sometimes unbearable to watch, let alone, I imagine, to go through. You know, brain tumours that, that take away your kind of dignity are hugely debilitating to watch, actually. But I guess, you know, what I see is this extraordinary resilience in people to just keep going 
and that <laughs> is very humbling because I, I I always think would I be able to do that and I guess that's what we do isn't it we see these things and we think would I be able to manage that I guess until it happens we don't know we won't know no when I heard you speak for the first time I was at a lunch and you were the guest speaker and it's fair to say that the room was was full of of ladies and all of a certain age um you know apart from a handful of us who were a bit younger and you spoke for about 45 50 minutes but no one no one noticed that it was that it was longer than usual and i don't think there was a dry eye in the house this is something that touches people and that they don't talk about and they don't hear people talking about it and it is helpful isn't it when someone suddenly will stand up and, and let so. them feel that I'm very moved just hearing you say that. I guess, um, you know, it goes back to what drives me. Who knows? Something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whether it's my friend Gordon's death in my 20s. You know, that I was thinking at that time arriving. When I, I worked at London Lighthouse, which was the first HIV and AIDS centre, um, basically because I walked in and asked for a job and then thought, you know, shit, they said yes. <laughs> it was like I have to... <laughs> I now have to do it. Um, but I remember turning up from work and being terrified to go in the door. You know, I was 25, 26 or whatever it was. And thinking what on earth is going to be on the other side of that door today. So I, I get the fear. People who are in their 80s, we have to feel comfortable in being able to talk. They're in the last phase of their life. Even if they live another 20 years, it's the last phase. Therefore... We need to start thinking differently. We need to start thinking about things. Putting it off doesn't mean it's not going to happen. So it really is important talking to those kinds of audiences on the island that they can engage with you in the right way and not be terrified. But also, you know, when you're trying to raise money for something, there's that kind of fine balance between kind of, as you've said, not trying to scare people, but also trying to be a bit uplifting and trying to get people to, to donate. And that's what I wanted to talk about now, because you have this huge amount of money that you have to raise every year. I think of things like Walk the White, uh, you have a Mountbatten Choir, you know, there are sort of big things on the island. But how's the fundraising going for such a huge, you know, it's an unthinkable amount of money that you need to, to get? It is. And I, I think going back to that uniqueness of Mountbatten and the island, I think when you get the services right, when you are delivering what the community needs and you are listening to them and you are watching them and trying to put in place something that's going to serve them, I think when you've got the right quality of that service, I think maybe when you've got the right leadership, and I'm not the only leader in this organisation, there's a group of us that run it, and I think you've got a community out there who knows they need what you're delivering. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a charity, but in a way, it's almost, it's almost like an insurance policy. Yeah, absolutely, it is. So I think that uniqueness of all of those things coming together and aligning is what makes this organisation so extraordinary. Any one of those things can go wrong at any time. <laughs> and I guess it's trying to make sure it, it stays balanced for as long as possible. I've always found asking for money difficult. You know, every time I stand up, basically what I'm saying is give us your cash because otherwise we're not going to, you know, we're not <laughs> yeah. going to be able to carry on. And that is uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but the only, I think the only way of doing that realistically and successfully is having a product that people can see as the best it can be. And even if it's not, that your drive is to make it the best. I want to be the best. You've opened up this building. We're, we're in, the, in the hospice at the, at the moment. We're in your office. But um, I read that when you came here, you had said, I want to make more of the building. Mm. Um, so just tell us, what have you done here? Because there's a great cafe and yeah. art exhibitions. And so I guess, you know, what you see, I mean, I've worked in a number of hospices. And you see the fear that's in human beings in the community being translated into those places. So sometimes hospices are their own worst enemies by not challenging the status quo, by letting people still be afraid, by hiding it away. So we have these amazing buildings, you know, which are very rarely used by people normally. 
you know, we have a part of the building which has the beds that no one dares go anywhere near because terrible things go on there. Um, you know, you have corridors you shouldn't walk down. You have bereaved people coming in one door that can't talk to someone who's dying. Why not bring all of that together? You know, I always make the point here if someone comes to visit, walking them through the beds. You know, my experience again is people love seeing life going on around them. Yes. They don't want to be stuck in a room with the door shut, contemplating the moment yeah. <laughs> that their death is going to happen. Seeing that life is going on, you know, we have a bar, we have a drinks trolley that goes round two <laughs> or three times a day. People can have what they like. You know, I remember there was a big um, drive in the NHS to stop everyone smoking in healthcare institutions. People will continue to smoke here as long as I'm <laughs> chief executive. <laughs> you know, don't take away pleasure. Yeah, if you can't do it when you're in your last few days It's or weeks. crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So we have a smoking room here. People can, patients can go. Um, you know, relatives can smoke outside. We are exempt from that, by the way, as, as a hospice, um, from, the, from the smoking ban. Yeah. Um, but I'm not playing into being politically correct in an organisation where people need to have their pleasure. I like that. I think it's, it's not judgment. You know, the last thing you need is judgment when, you're, when you're about to die. We're all going to die. It doesn't yeah. matter what you do. Tell me about Walk the White, because it's coming up. And it is. I've seen a wonderful photo of you kind of <laughs> greeting everyone. With You've got lanyards around your neck. You look absolutely in your happy place. I love it. Um, I have walked it. It's eight. a long way. Yeah, I think this is the eighth time, 28 what? miles, yeah. which I do with no kind of plan or um, you know talk here's me talking about planning for dying I'm not even planning for walk the white I just turn up and do it <laughs> so 28 miles it's hard it's not an easy walk but my god it's so motivating you know stopping and talking to people walking with people on their t-shirts in memory of mum you know a photograph of mum mm-hmm. it's the biggest walk of its kind in Europe is it mm-hmm Wow, it's, it's an extraordinary event, and and you can you know you walk across the island through places you would never got access to normally. Do people open up routes to go Absolutely. through? Absolutely, oh, so landowners open up their land for us. Um, it's an incredible kind of feat of engineering, really. And is it a big fundraiser as well? <laughs> yeah, so we raise about quarter, um, quarter of a million a year on that day. But it's iconic. It's been going long before I was here. You know, it's been yeah. growing over thirty five years you know was the brainchild of of of, of two men who who started it off and it has continued to gain momentum there's something quite unique about i remember the first year i came and i did it i had no idea really i mean i sort of heard about it i turned up and i was just walking along thinking how on earth is this possible how you know because most hospices have their walk you'll have about 500 people there was eight and a half thousand people (laughs) on this walk and i'm thinking how on earth does this work and I remember very quickly, a couple of days afterwards, thinking, you know what, I don't want to know because I don't want to interfere with this. This is something extraordinary. And it continues. And we have great people working on it. We have, you know, on that day, 300 volunteers come together to help. It, it's that it's that what we were talking about, uniqueness of what Mountbatten is in this community and walking and, and, you know, the exhilaration of getting to the top of Tennyson, thinking you're never going to get there and then realising there's still another five miles to go or something, you know. Um, it, it is quite extraordinary. There's a huge brand awareness with Mountbatten. As I said before, you know, I'm working with Homestar, I, I sort of watch and try to learn, trying to work out how we can in any way emulate it. But even the colour, I've been to lunches where it's been, you know, splash of yellow for Mountbatten. It's, it's, you've really nailed that. I mean, the branding, we, for want of a better word, rebranded about five or six years ago. It was Earl Mountbatten Hospice that had been since the 70s, obviously named after Louis Mountbatten of Burma, who was murdered by the IRA, 79, and then this was opened in 82 um, with his name. Um, Local family, you know, everyone knew the Mountbattens. And I guess what we wanted to do, you know, it was called Earl Mountbatten Hospice, and we did a lot of work with the community. You know, a lot of young people didn't even know who Earl Mountbatten was. Yeah, a bit of a mouthful. Um, Hospice was, oh, my God, you know, that immediately puts that fear in so we wanted I guess to open up the brand to be more than um, what people thought it was so you know the, the name Mountbatten was the key word and I remember um, one of our 
trustees now, Stephen Isaac, who's a branding expert. I mean, he um, runs the owns the Vendor Arts Club. M- amazing man offered to help us with the branding and did it really pro bono. I mean, it was quite extraordinary. And I, I was very sceptical about rebranding because I think it's just a nonsense, really. You are who you are and just get on with it. And he came and a colleague of his whose father had died here worked very closely on it. And they took us through, you know, I don't know whether you've ever been through this process. They take have, you through a presentation yeah. and yeah. you see the thing change slowly. Yes. Came to Mountbatten and this, this um, sunflower went around the beginning of the word and then on the next slide the leaf moved and I just cried (laughs) and I just thought my god is this some kind of marketing kind of wizardry yes exactly (laughs) and I was really annoyed with it because it had made me you know when in the actual vision visual itself is what we do yeah that leaf just slips away and it it doesn't need explaining somehow so I think there's so many facets to it and very quickly that has come become Iconic yeah, on iconic. on the island, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Sort of final questions, really, on this. Mary had said to me that you always take the time to go and visit people in the rooms and the patients and talk to them. But what what do you say to someone who's about to die? So you know, there will be people who don't have family around them, I'm sure. So you are that last person they're going to talk to. Yes, I mean, I I think you know, not going off at a tangent, but loneliness and isolation is is a huge issue. So. One in six households on the Isle of Wight, single people over the age of 65, 25% of that group are over the age of 85. That's our challenge. So, yes, there are a lot of people who will die alone. But not because they have Mountbatten? No. I mean, you know, they will be there with care around them, but they won't have informal carers who they have the opportunity to say goodbye, I love you, forgive me, all the important things that people need to say. I guess I say very little and always try and be led by the person people want to tell their story and that's what really matters at the end of life you know just sitting here telling you some of my story today is incredibly cathartic (laughs) Um, and you know it changes your life doesn't it because somebody is bothered to sit and listen to something that might feel to you completely ridiculous and then unmeaningful somebody is taking the time to listen to it and you know sometimes people's stories are really complex and they're really challenging you know, I remember when I was working as a therapist, you know, a generation of men particularly who'd been in the Second World War, who'd lived with the fact of killing people and never spoken about it. And suddenly, as they were dying, needed to tell someone what they'd been carrying. So that was common. Other people's stories were absolutely hilarious, you know. And I guess just helping people to know that they've mattered and their story has made a difference and somebody's willing to listen to it. I tend not to say very much, really, but absolutely learn huge amounts from people. <laughs> Listening. Mm. That's the key. So the message is really got to talk about death. We've also got to listen. We have to, to really listen, not pretend we're listening. Talked about Cicely Saunders, who was a, was a, a famous nurse mm. in palliative care. Mm. Um, and there's a quote on lots of your documentation that I found on the internet which says you matter because you are you and you matter until the last moment of your life incredibly powerful and very challenging because she's not saying you matter but only if you've lived your life in a certain way or you matter because you look like me you know she's saying you matter whoever you are whatever you've done however you've lived your life and I guess you know one of the important things going back is that everyone will die And not everyone will have had the life that maybe you or I have had. People will maybe have done things that are unimaginable. People will have experienced things that are unthinkable. And what she is saying there, when you come to die, we're going to treat you exactly the same as the next person. So, you know, I always give the example on the island, we have the Category A prisons. And people are in those prisons because they've done things that you and I couldn't possibly understand. But because they're in there for life, they will die. And those prisons are in our community, so Mountbatten will go in and look after them. So our nurses, our doctors go into the prison when needed. There's an end-of-life room in one of the prisons. And they have to make sure that that person dying in that bed has the same experience as anyone dying here at the hospice or at home. And that's really hard. I can imagine. But essential. It's a great equaliser. It is a great equaliser, and I guess 
makes you realise that we're not all one thing. We tend to define each other, don't we, by very narrow margins. <laughs> Even a murderer will have fallen in love, will have been kind to someone. So trying to understand the fullness of what human mean, being human means and treating everyone the same, it's impossible, but it's a, a really important aim. <laughs> I always think it's sad that it's often not till someone's funeral that you find out what an incredible life they lived. Mm. Absolutely. And we give people the opportunity here to tell us that themselves. <laughs> OK, we're going to do the final round of the podcast now. So a bit more upbeat. Um, <laughs> we ask all our guests a quick fire round of five things about the island. So, Nigel, are you ready? I think so. Number one, your favourite place to grab a bite to eat. Well, I've recently been reintroduced to Robert Thompson, who's opened his restaurant again. Love it. But I also love um, going to Castle Haven down in Knighton. Um, you can only have one. Oh, no, I'm not going to have one. <laughs> oh, rebellion! <laughs> <laughs> that says everything about who I am. I know. Right, All we're right. going to take your first answer. All right, Tom. And I'll tell you why we are. Because <laughs> we had think. Robert on the podcast last of course, season. Of course, yes. Um, before he moved back to having yeah. his own restaurant. So I think that's one we're going to. His food is extraordinary, but he is an incredibly kind human being. He was a great He interview. has shut his restaurant and come and cooked here for patients. Has he? Mm, a number of times. Well, it doesn't surprise me. So, yeah, no, he's he was a great he was a great person on the podcast. OK, number two, your favourite beat. Well, now I've only got one answer. Um, so we live in St. Lawrence, um, just above Woody Bay. It's incredibly isolated. There's very rarely anyone there. And I love going there on my own. Is it difficult to access? Can people uh, get steps there? can go down there? They did fall away recently, but they've been rebuilt. OK, because St. Lawrence <laughs> is slightly slipping into the. It is. Hopefully it'll be there as long as I'm here. I hope so. Um, number three, your number one island activity. Number one island activity, eating out. I'm not a very physical person in terms of activity. But you're a foodie. I love Hence food. Hence the Robert Thompson yeah, and Castle Haven, which is a fantastic yeah, yeah. foodie spot down on the south. Number four, which island charity is closest to your heart? Now, I normally would ban people from saying where they were, but I would have thought it would have to be Mountbatten. I mean, it has to be Mountbatten because it's my life. It's my work and my life, of course, and it's, it's what I'm driven, driven towards. You know, all charity is important, and I'm driven towards people's vulnerability. And I guess, for me, there's nothing more vulnerable than dying. Number five, hidden gem, somewhere specific, off the beaten track people might not know about? Well, one of the things I, I do love doing is, is walking around St. Lawrence, so the coastal path, walking along to St. Catharines. And there's a moment on the coastal path between Steep Hill Cove and where we live where you, you walk through some trees, the path goes through some trees, and suddenly you come out and you see the channel, and it's the most amazing moment to do that because it's almost every time I do it, I forget it's coming. <laughs> and you see it again as if it's new and, and it's that you know incredible view across the channel to another world really is out there it's almost a gateway to another world the English channel isn't it just thinking what's going on over there and that's where you can get that moment of tranquility mm. that you mentioned before mm. must be so important absolutely for you absolutely and sometimes it only needs to be a moment well, Nigel, thank you. It's been really amazing to get to know you better and hear your island story. If you want more island news, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, 5-stories.co.uk. I'm Harriet Hadfield. My producer is Alex Warren, and you'll find us on Instagram at Island Stories Podcast. This season, the podcast is fortnightly, so we'll have another episode for you in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.